0: If you will take your Bibles and join me in Psalms, Psalm chapter eight. So we've got two Sundays left uh, in the Psalms. Not sure which Psalm I'm going to preach next week. Uh, but the following week we will have a guest preacher and, and I would encourage you. We've got a couple we've got two guest preachers still to come this year. And I just want to encourage you, these are not Sundays that you want to miss. Miss the Sunday that I preach, but don't miss the Sundays that either one of these guys preach. Uh, Bill Haynes will be with us on the last Sunday of the month. Uh, Bill is a retired pastor and, and someone that I've known for many years and have admired and who has been a great help to me uh, over, over those years. And so he'll, he'll be here to preach Psalm 95. And then in December, uh, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., Uh, will be with us. He is the uh, Dean of Preaching at Beeson Divinity School at Stanford University. I have been trying to get this man here for eight years. I have hounded him every year for eight years, and he finally relented and agreed to come. So he'll be here, I think, the first Sunday in December. Um, Starting the first Sunday in September, as I was preparing, uh, looking through some old... Uh, sermon notes from since I, you know over the last 13 years, I came I came across um, a I guess a, a mistake on my part. I didn't realize that I had done what I had done, and that is back in 2018 we started preaching through the book of Mark, and we never finished it. We got exactly almost to the halfway point of the book and stopped and didn't finish the book. So. Uh, we're going to go back and pick up where we left off in Mark and finish out uh, 2021 uh, through the, the book of Mark. But the next couple of weeks will be in the Psalms. And so uh, uh, hopefully uh, you'll finish strong with us as we uh, finish preaching uh, these various Psalms that we have chosen for this, uh, for this summer. I've tagged this morning's message very simple. Easy to remember. What's the what's the 2 a.m. Uh, version of this sermon? It is God is great and God is good. So let's look at Psalm chapter 8, 9 verses together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have... Establish strength because of your foes to to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor." You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Psalm 8 is the first song of praise in the Psalter. Psalms 1 and 2. Which read like wisdom literature are the double doors into the Psalm Into the psalms, if you remember, Psalms one and two opens up the doors into what the Bible calls the blessed life. Now that's a term that a lot of people use today, and most people have no idea what they're talking about when they when they use it. But the the psalmist, the the, the songbook of God, opens. It's doors, it's double doors wide in Psalm 1 and 2 as wisdom literature, letting us know this is the blessed life. But then it takes a a sharp turn in chapters 3 through 7 because those chapters, those five chapters combined, are what we call songs of lament. As David cries out to the Lord for deliverance from his trouble. This sense of complaint resumes in Psalm 9 and following. But Psalm 8 is a song and a psalm of total praise. From start to finish, this psalm celebrates the greatness and the goodness of God. It is addressed, as we saw, to the choir master to be used in corporate worship. Here is the standard of what all praise music should be. And I've said this at least in three other sermons, so why not make it four? All great worship music has at its center God. C.S. Lewis said of this psalm that it is a short and exquisite lyric. Psalm 8 celebrates the majesty of God. God's majesty seen here through the lens of creation. In fact, Psalm 8 is the first of what is called the nature the nature psalms. Psalm 19, 29, 104 and 148 are all included in this in in these types of psalms called the nature psalms. In verse 3 of this psalm, God's majesty is put on display in the creation of as we just read it and as we just sung about it, David Sung it so so rightly this morning, the moon and the stars. In verses six through eight, God's majesty is put on display in the creation of the birds in the air, the animals on the earth, and the fit and the fish under the waters. And I love, I love verse nine up. And it also says, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea, David's like, even those fish we don't know anything about. I'm including those. Because there's just some stuff way down deep in the ocean that we still don't know anything about. I don't know if you ever get sucked into these um, captions on the internet that will say, uh, shocking pictures from whatever. And I this past week as I was uh, uh, online, it popped up and it said, shocking pictures from uh, deep in the ocean. And it had a little picture of two divers with their lights, you know, their little headlamps on, and all you could see was the, the the face of this shark with these massive teeth that looked like they were 20 feet long. You know, and it just kind of gets your attention. What's really down way deep in the ocean? And so David just says there that the animals of the earth and the fish under the waters and whatever's passes along the paths of the sea. Psalm 8 does not limit the majesty of God to what you can see through a telescope. It teaches us that God's majesty can also be seen by what you see in in the mirror. You see, Psalm 8 is not just about the majesty of God, it's also about the dignity of man. However, this psalm is no poetic selfie. The dignity of man is presented here as further evidence of God's greatness and God's goodness. This is the message of Psalm eight. All creation is called to worship the greatness and the goodness of God. You know, if, if you're ever in that conversation with yourself or with someone else, what in and the conversation goes to this, to this question why am I on the earth? There's only one answer to that question. The only reason God created you and put you here on this earth is to worship Him. That's it. That's why you exist. You exist for the, for the praise and the glory and the worship of the greatness of our God. Everything in the created world is bidding us, calling us, and exhorting us to give praise To the greatness and the goodness of God. You see, the key verse in Psalm 8 is verse 4, where it asks the question, what is man? What is man? Now, this question has baffled scientists and philosophers and theologians. The greatest of them have been baffled by this question. Yet, the simple truth is that you cannot answer the question of what is man Unless you first answer the question, who is God? And to know God is to worship His majesty. So we celebrate the majesty of God because God is great and because God is good. There are two lessons. These are the two lessons from this psalm. Lesson number one, God is great. God is great. Psalm 8 begins and ends with a shout of praise and adoration. Look at what it says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This doxology is more detailed in the opening of the psalm than at the conclusion. Verses 1 and 2 declare the praise of God's greatness, but it also talks about the paradox of God's greatness. So let's talk about the first of those. The praise of God's greatness this morning. Verse 1 declares that God is great on the earth and that He is great in the heavens. So God is great on the earth, verse 1. In Scripture, one's name is more than a means of identification. We see this throughout the Bible. Um, Jesus changes Peter's name and calls him what? The Rock. Calls him the Rock. Why? Because a name gave identification. People in the Bible chose names very specifically to communicate something about that person. God's name reveals to us His nature. And you know why God's name is... And if you don't know this, I probably shouldn't make an assumption about things today but you know how important god's name is it's so important that in exodus 27 scripture teaches us that we should not what take the lord's name in vain why because to take the lord's name in in vain is an attack on the very nature and character of who god is he said, David seeks to obey this command in how he dresses God in the psalm. He says, O Lord, O our Lord. The children of Israel, they would avoid using uh, the name Lord, that, that, that first use of Lord in the text, capital L-O-R-D. That's God's name, Yahweh. They, they would even spell the vowels out in that name because that name was so holy and sacred. And, and, and they would often not even speak that name because it was so holy. And sacred. They would often use the the second use of the word Lord, which we see in our text. That second use, Lord, that's capital L but lowercase O R D is the Hebrew word Adonai, okay, which means sovereign one. That that's the word that they would use more often than they would use God's name Yahweh. But to 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 say all of that is to say this is that David is trying to say something to us. Today, just like he was trying to say something in that day, when he uses both names together. Oh Yahweh, our Sovereign One. You see what David is doing here when he says, Oh Yahweh, our Adonai. He is invoking a statement of faith. He is acknowledging that there is only one God. Notice, that it does not say lords, it says Lord. And not only is he saying that there is one God, but he's saying that this is the God, the living God of Israel. But this is no tribal God whose worship is limited to a particular group, right? What does it say here? How majestic is your name in what? All the earth. So God is not some kind of tribal deity. God is the God of all the earth, of all people. But something else that's going on here is there's a word here that, 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 that may be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And, and yet there's, uh, well actually there's two words and, and, and they're very parallel to each other. And that is the word glory and the word majesty. You see, glory is the greatness of God's essential nature. What it is, glory is the summation of all of who God is. But the word majesty is the open display of God's essential nature. So here's what it is. Majesty, this is how you can keep these two similar terms yet different right in your mind. God's glory is everything that God is. And God's majesty is glory showing off. So when we say that God is majestic or there is the majesty of God, what are we saying? We are saying there is God's glory on display. There is God's glory showing off. That's His majesty. God is great on the earth and God is great in the heavens. God is great in the heavens. At the, end of chapter, at the end of verse 1, it says, You have set your glory above in the heavens. Glory is an attribute of God. Glory is a sum total of all the attributes of God. We announce the glory of God. We ascribe the glory to God. We respond to the glory of God. We exalt the glory of God. And in all of our doing, let us not forget that God's glory, listen, is intrinsic and inherent. And you say, now, what do you mean by that, preacher? Those are big words. It's inherent and it's intrinsic. Well, what I mean by that is, God is not glorious because you and I praise Him. God is glorious because He's God. God doesn't need us to praise Him for Him to be glorious. He is glorious without our praise, but that's why we should praise Him. And to make sure we don't confuse human greatness with divine glory, the Lord has set His His glory above the heavens. Now I love what 1 Kings 8.27 says. This is Solomon speaking as he prayed over the temple after it was erected. Look what he prayed. But God will indeed dwell on the earth. But will God indeed dwell on the earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you how much less this house that I have built. You see, Solomon rightly acknowledged that nothing we do is good enough for God. Some people object to joyful thanks, passionate praise, and uninhibited worship, claiming that it doesn't take all that. But nothing we can offer can be enough, much less too much for the God who has set His glory above the heavens. Maybe this quote from James Montgomery Boyce, well, I don't have it on the screen, so let me read it to you. Maybe this will help a little bit. James Montgomery Boyce said, If God has set His glory above the heavens, it is certain that nothing under the heavens can praise Him adequately. God is worthy of the best you have. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Do you know what that means this morning? That God is not an average God. If God was an average God, we could give Him average praise. It, it means that God's not a mediocre God. If God was a mediocre God, then we could give Him mediocre praise. But our God is great and greatly to be praised. Listen, none of us individually, nor will any of us corporately together ever approach giving God too much praise. And over 13 years, I've never worried about y- y'all getting or giving too much praise to God. Matter of fact, whatever that, wherever that line is, you know, the line that you cross over into too much praise, I don't even know where that line is. We've never even got, any, we've never even got close enough to see where the line might be much less to cross the line and say, well, we just gave God too much praise today. We gave too much today. We sung too much. We prayed too much. We lifted our hands too much. We cried too much. We shouted too much. We sang too much. We read too much scripture today. Never has that ever happened. Verse 1 shows us the praise of God's greatness, while verse 2 through 3 shows us The paradox of God's greatness. The paradox of God's greatness. Verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. This verse is often referenced when a little child says something very profound. Well, out of the mouths of babes and children, right? But it's more than that. This verse declares that the greatness of God is seen seen in the paradox between strength and weakness. This contrast between strength and weakness is presented against the backdrop of opposition to God. Now watch, this this is interesting. There is in this text the very fact of spiritual opposition. Now there's a lot of talk in the Psalms about... David and and those who write Psalms about having enemies. But listen, Psalm 8 does something really interesting. Psalm 8 doesn't talk about David's enemies. David is talking about God's enemies. David is concerned about God's enemies here rather than his own. Verse 2 says, The Lord has foes. These foes are further described as the enemy and the avenger. Not to be confused with the avengers, okay? But the avenger. This may refer to Satan and demonic forces or to human beings whose armies have attacked the people of God on earth. But whatever these foes are, human or spirit beings, listen, the strategy is still the same. The enemies of God foolishly use their power, might, and strength to overthrow God. Now, I'm going to give you another verse to help you out this morning. If somebody ever asks you, what's wrong with the world? Like if you're ever in that conversation and somebody says, I just don't understand what's wrong with the world. Why why is the world the way that it is? Right here it is. Write it down. Psalm 2, 1 through 3 explains it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you know what those verses are saying? The problem with the world and the reason why the world is in the shape that it's in is because all the way back in Genesis 3, guess what happened? Rebellious sinners have cast off divine authority. Rebellious sinners have cast off divine authority and boy it, it really fits with our world's mantra today right you can't tell me what's right and wrong well we live in a world where people don't want truth except whatever they believe truth to be you ever had anybody say to you don't believe everything you hear Yeah, don't believe everything you hear. But listen, this morning, what we need to believe is this one truth. That the world has fallen into its pitiful estate this morning because this is the problem with man. Man is trying to overthrow God. By simply trying to get rid of divine authority. But I like what verse 4 says. Don't leave off verse 4 if you share verses 1 through (laughs) 3. What's God doing while we're down here trying to get rid of divine authority? He laughs. You know, we want to defund the police and get rid of the police, right? Why? Because we don't want to have any kind of authority over us. We don't want to have any, anybody making sure that people are obeying the law. Man might try to get rid of human authority. He might try to get rid of uh, 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 human uh, law. Uh, 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 th- those who make sure that we keep the law. And, some, and, and in some places are getting away with it. But God says, you try to get rid of my authority? I just laugh. I just laugh. Verse 2 shows us that not only the fact of spiritual opposition, but it also shows us the failure of spiritual opposition. God steals the enemy and the avenger at the end of verse 2. But notice how God defeats his foes. God establishes strength out of the mouth of the weak, the vulnerable, the helpless babies and infants. One, one writer that I read this past week, this is what he wrote. Listen to this. The cry of every newborn baby remind, uh, rem, reminds a plotting world that the sovereign God is still in control. The week Jesus was crucified, the week Jesus was crucified, he cleansed the temple of the money changers and the dove sellers. Then the children came in. Do you remember this? They came in and they were singing praises and the religious leaders were losing their mind in Psalm, I mean, in Matthew 21 16. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Jesus is quoting Psalm 8 2. And He declared Himself to be the Lord God who establishes strength out of the mouths of little children when His religious foes refused to acknowledge Him as Messiah and King. This is how God always works. God always displays uh, strength through weakness. Paul reminds us, he says, but God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wise. The strong God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in His presence. God is great, and God alone is great. Psalm eight does not stop with the goodness with the greatness of God, but it ends with our second and last point this morning that God is good. God is good, God is good, verses one and two. Focus on God alone, and it's not until first 3 that we see a shift to the first person statement. Look at what David says in the first person. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into place. This is a personal statement, but it's still focused on God. As David celebrates the majesty of God, he, his focus shifts from what is above him to what is around him. Yet he's still focused on God's majesty. Verses 3 through 8 praise God for his goodness. The goodness of God is seen in God's care for humanity and God's creation of humanity. So let's look at these last two points here this morning God's care for humanity. Verses 3 through 4 records one sentence. It's a question that makes a statement about God's care for humanity. You see, we're going to look at two big words here this morning, but, but don't let these words get in the way, okay? But they're words that we need to know. Just because they may be hard, doesn't mean that we don't need to know them or use them. But we see God's care for humanity in the, trans, the transcendence of God. That's what verse 3 says. That God is transcendent. That, that God is infinitely above and beyond us. David looked up into the clear sky in the darkness of the night and guess what he saw? Maybe this is when David was out tending the sheep one night and he's laying there in the field and he's looking up into the sky and he sees this. Maybe this is why he wrote these words in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. He called the sky your heavens. It belongs to God because God created it. But creating the heavens was not a hard task for God, right? David calls the heavens the work of your fingers. You know what David is saying? Is that God was just doing when he created the, the, the universe, the sky? God was finger painting like kids do, God was just finger painting. But, but here's what I want you to think for a moment this morning. Think about David. Here is a man who had no telescope. All he could see of the, of the universe is what he could see with his naked eye. And he wrote these words. Now let me just ask you a question this morning. With a telescope, or now with the advent of the internet, just with Google... Just go to Google Images and type in the words, Milky Way Galaxy, Universe, The Heavens, and see what kind of pictures come up on your screen. See the depths in which we can now look into our universe. And if David, a man who could only see what he could see with his naked eye, could have such praise of god such 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 a a feeling of god's greatness and his transcendence how much more should you and i who can put our eye to a telescope and see deep into the universe i don't know about you but it blows my mind that anybody in our world today could call themselves an atheist. How in the world can you think all of that just showed up on its own? Huh? How in the world can somebody believe that that just showed up on its own? Most atheists say they don't have enough faith to believe in God. And I just would simply say that it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. Because you've got to overcome a whole lot of evidence that says that there is a God to get to the conclusion that there is no God. According to Scripture, Almighty God set everything in its appointed place. This is the transcendence of God at work. But also, we see, uh, we see God's care for humanity in the imminence of God. And that's what verse 4 talks about, God's imminence. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? You know what the answer to this question is? What is man for that you are mindful of him? The answer to the question is nothing. God is so transcendent that the creation of the vast and mysterious universe is child's play to Him. We are rebellious creatures that exist Temporarily on a puny rock in a galaxy on the far end of the universe, we are less than nothing. But the right answer is the wrong answer. The goodness of God is seen in how God treats weak creatures like you and I. Look at verse five, uh, look at uh, Psalm one forty four three through four. It reminds us of what David is reminding us: is that God is mindful of us. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are but a passing shadow. Or how about Matthew 10, 29-31? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are are all numbered. But fear not, therefore you are more value than many sparrows. The Bible reminds us, and even in this passage, what is God mindful of us? I mean, look, we are, we are nothing, and yet, we are something. God has set His mind on us. He cares for us. He has His mind on us. And then really, verse 5 answers the question, of verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? You have set Him a little lower than the angels or than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory. God cares for the Son of Man. And the word here for cares is more than a feeling. It's, it means that God longs for us, seeks us out, takes care of us. In verse 5, David uses the term Son of Man to describe human weakness. But when we get to the Gospels, Jesus uses the term Son of Man to describe and identify Himself as God in human flesh who came to earth to redeem us and die on the cross for us. You see, the goodness of God is seen in His care for humanity as well as in His creation of humanity. We're almost done here. God created man with dignity. God created man with dignity. What is man? Verse 5 says... What does verse 5 say? You what? You made him. You made him, God. Whatever he is, you made him. Listen, human beings are not evolved beasts. God created us. Psalm 100 says... It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people. God made us, but how did God make man? Verse 5 is kind of hard to translate, but it's not hard to interpret. What did He say? He made them little lower than heavenly beings. So if we literally render that verse, it might read this way. That God made man a little lower than God himself. Meaning that God created man with dignity. We're not a little higher than the beast of the field. We are a little lower than the heavenly beings. But then it says that he also crowned him who he made a little lower than the heavenly beings with glory and honor. But we know that glory and honor is only ascribed to God. Back in verse 1. Yet the glory of God that is set above in the heavens is also set on earth. God crowned humanity with glory and honor. Now look, this doesn't mean that we're little gods. All this is doing, it is substantiating the writings of Moses in Genesis 127 where Moses writes that God said that He created man in His own image In the image of God, He created male and female. So, how about a sidebar, real quick? Again, in our day, there's what? What is what is Genesis one twenty seven teaching us? There's one race. One, one race. One, one race. there's a fallacy in our world about races. There's not races. There's a race. It's called the human race. And we're all brown-skinned humans. Some a little more brown and some a little less brown. But all brown. And guess what? There's one race... And there's two kinds of people. Male and female. Now I'm just going to leave you right here with this. If you can't believe that in the first chapter of the Bible, you ain't going to believe nothing else in the rest of the chapters of the Bible. You've got to get that first before you can move on to believe in anything else. That's the most elementary and fundamental belief of Christianity. We are one race made up of two types of people called male and female. Let's just stick with that. Now, it ain't going to play well, and it's not politically correct, and it's not going to win you awards, or gain you friends, or, 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 or get people talking good about you, but nevertheless, that is exactly what the Bible teaches us. And best to stick with the Bible than to be against God and him laugh at you. God created man with dignity, but he also created him for dominion. This is the close. He created man not to just reside on the earth, but, and with other animals, he created us to preside over it. He made man dominion over the earth. He gave us stewardship. We see that in verse 6, about all the, the birds and the Uh, uh, and all the things that He's put under our feet. Sheep, oxen, beasts of the field. God has given humanity dominion over all uh, animate life, from the birds of the air to the fish of the sea to the beasts of the field, but considered the sign of human dominion. Psalm 8 is a beautiful song of praise, but it leaves out an important part of the story, right? God created man with dignity and dominion, but the original design was marred by the fall. Adam and Eve introduced sin, guilt, shame, and suffering and death into the human experience, and each of us stands guilty before God as sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. The image of God is tainted, twisted, and tarnished in us. Our software has got a virus in it which makes our hardware not function properly. Birds escape us. Fish elude us. Amen, fishermen? Animals attack us. Don't ever have an animal for a pet that could take you out. That's dumb. If you listen to Rick and Bubba, you've heard enough stories on Rick and Bubba about animals who are killing humans. That's dumb to have an animal that can take you out as a pet. We don't live... In the renewed earth, we live in the fallen creation. Rather than submitting to our dominion, but the plan of God has not failed. The first adamant plummeted humanity into sin, but the second adamant brings humanity into righteousness. How about our final verses here this morning? Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. For it was not. A He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You know what? Hebrews 10, 5 through 10 is 2, 5 through 10 is saying that Psalm 8 is all about Jesus. That's what that Psalm is all about. It's all about Jesus. That Jesus is greater than angels, but that God made Jesus a little lower than the angels. Why? So that he could taste death for you and I. We are sinful people. We live in a sinful world. We are weak creatures of the moment. We're always staring death in the face and probably we feel like we're doing that More so now than ever in our history. We are doomed to eternal punishment if left to our own devices. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, right? But God. We once walked following the course of this world, but God. We followed the prince of the power of the air, but God. We possessed the spirit of the sons of disobedience, but God. We lived according to the passions of the flesh, carrying out uh, the desires of the body and the mind. But God, we were by nature children of wrath and enemies of God, but God being rich in mercy, right? God being rich in mercy loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sin and has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. God intervened by sending the Lord Jesus to taste death for us. His death on the cross paid our sin debt and His resurrection from the dead now gives us life. Christ's work on the cross did not merely undo Adam's sin and put us back where Adam was. Rather, it gave us much more. It made us like Christ. So how should we respond to this indescribable gift? Psalm 8 does not explain the dignity and the dominion of man to boost our self-esteem, It seeks to boost our God esteem. This is why the psalm ends right where it begins. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic and magnificent is your name in all the earth. God is great and God is good. I didn't learn that from some theology book. I didn't learn about that by reading Saints of Yesterday. Neither did you. Do you remember where you learned God is great, God is good? Do you? I do. At least my first memory... I learned it at Granny's house on Sunday afternoon after church. Because back in the day, we didn't go out to the restaurant on Sunday afternoons after church. Anybody remember going to Granny's house? Or going to your own house after church and having lunch? We, we went to Granny's house. Granny cooked on Saturday and got up early on Sunday morning to make sure lunch was ready for the family to come over and eat. So we'd all go to Granny's house. And I don't remember how young I was, but I was pretty young. But I remember where I learned God is great and God is good. It was at the, it was at the lunch table at Granny's house on Sunday afternoon. That's where I learned God is great and God is good. Let him, let us thank him for our food. And so let me just finish with this. If you know God is great and God is good, then you ought to give him praise. And if for the first time this morning you've come to the realization that God is great and God is good, then you should surrender your life to Him. Father, this morning, You are great and You are good. And there's only one appropriate response to that. And that is for those of us that have already raised our hands and surrendered our life to You. Our response is to keep those hands raised in praise. And then for those that don't know You but are coming to the realization that You are great and You are good. Father, may they surrender to You because You are the only one worthy of surrender to And as we started this morning, that all we have to do is to look unto you with the eyes of faith for our salvation. And you will save anyone, anywhere, who will look to you. Do that this morning, Father. for your glory and your renown in this world, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song together this morning.